Take your Bibles, turn with me again to Jonah. We continue in our series in Jonah at chapter 3 and verses 5 through 10 today. You know, the sound of a uh, smoke alarm going off in your house is really annoying, unless there's a fire. You see, warnings really are gracious and loving things. If you see your preschooler dashing into the street, you will scream as loud as you need to to stop them from danger. The book of Jonah is the story of God sending Jonah to shout loudly at a foreign city called Nineveh to warn them of his coming judgment. God cared about this city, a city filled with people who didn't even know who he was. Jonah, the Jewish prophet, didn't want to go. It was way outside of his comfort zone. And so when being instructed to go, Jonah ran as far as he could the other way, jumping on a ship, and God stopped him, arrested his ship with a storm, and when Jonah was eventually thrown overboard, God uh, rescued him with a great fish and said, let's start over with this. And at the beginning of chapter 3, it says the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Okay? God gave him a second chance to obey him and take this message to Nineveh. And in our last study of verses 1 through 4, we found Jonah now obedient, chastised, verse 4, going into the city. On the first day Jonah started into the city, he proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned, destroyed. I can only imagine that when Jonah said that, he must have sounded like a lunatic to these foreigners. He probably looked like a lunatic too. We, we don't know exactly what a guy who's been in the fish for three days would look like, but we could imagine some discoloration or disfigured uh, appearance. But an amazing thing happened as he warns them. Verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. The Ninevites believed God. Now we might expect that it would say the Ninevites believed Jonah. But Jonah did not have the authority that would convince and transform their understanding of that message. The Ninevites recognized that when Jonah spoke, it was God's word. And that is a remarkable miracle that continues uh, today. That's the way God's word works. I, I trust that you experience that regularly. If you're in the word of God regularly, and I trust that you are, I trust that as you, as you read his word, there is this sense that this is not me and a book, a piece of paper. This is actually God 
speaking to me. I trust it as if, as if you're in a Bible study and, and, and you're discussing God's Word and you hear comments by other believers who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit that you sense God speaking to you. I trust it as you're in a, 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 hearing a message here or elsewhere that you have had those times where you understand that now God is talking to you. It's like the person who's leading or teaching disappears because God is at work in you. Because a preacher, a teacher, a leader can only try to persuade, but a, the Holy Spirit alone can uh, teach and convict and convince I love what Hebrews says about God's Word. It's living and active. I mean, it's just, it's just words on a page, but it's living and it's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. So it's like, it's like the Word of God by the Holy Spirit comes into our, our minds and begins to slice and dice and dissect. And it, what does it say? Discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. When people try to convince us, it's often about behaviors. And behaviors, we know, however, come from the motives and intentions of the heart. And that's where God's Spirit works through His Word, is in the motives and intentions. And so, and so if we're only convinced of changing behaviors, I'm not even sure that's, that's the Spirit of God. It's when He speaks to us about our intentions our desires, and, and what we want. And that process of conviction was going on in Nineveh as Jonah says, God's going to destroy you. Uh, we saw as we studied this last time that uh, the reference to 40 days points us very clearly to the fact that God was being gracious because it was a warning. It wasn't a thunderbolt. It was a warning. It was a time span God is not going to judge you yet. Do you see the two sides of this? God is going to judge you, but not yet. So that is the grace of God to say there is time to repent. You know that someone is recognizing the authority of God in his word when there is a response. And that is what we find in verse 5. They responded, they reacted... Because they understood this is actually God speaking. And, and really that's the evidence that we believe the authority of God's word is when we respond in obedience. It causes a reaction because if actually God who made heaven and earth is actually speaking to us, then there would be a, a response at, at, at your job. If, if someone under you tells you what to do, that's a suggestion. You'll think about it. If someone who's an authority over you tells you what to do, you do it because they are the boss. They might be the owner. They might sign your checks. And so they have the authority. And the people of Nineveh recognized that this was God's authority. The, people, the Ninevites believed God, verse 5. They declared a fast. And all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. So the sackcloth and the fasting... And there's a note that it is from the greatest to the least. And you think about the authority. So within every human system, there are greater and lesser. At your jobs and government and all that. So 
This person down here at the bottom of the ladder recognized this was God speaking, but this person at the top of the ladder also recognized God was speaking, and that's exactly where this passage is is going in terms of the king of Nineveh himself. But there is a response. They are are fasting. They are remorseful. Sackcloth is uh, exactly what it says. It's It's cloth that's uh, made out of a sack. Sacks could be made out of uh, coarsely woven goat's hair, uh, something uh, similar, I guess, to our burlap sack kind of a thing. They just kind of an industrial. You can, I remember we could put grain in, in these burlap sacks. Sometimes sackcloth uh, was worn. Actually, was a sack even in ancient times. They'd simply cut out the the arms and the and the head, and and you would wear this nondescript coarse. Uh, garment as a sign of mourning and fasting comes right along with that mourning uh, fasting and sackcloth are signs of mourning if you're in grief about a loss but it's a sign also of humbling when you are convicted and that's the idea here the people realize suddenly they were in deep trouble with God himself And we can only imagine then the immense heaviness and sense of doom that came over this city of of several hundred thousand people. There's just this sweeping fear that God's about to judge them. And so greatest to the least, verse 6, the example is the king. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Sitting in the dust was yet one more uh, outward indication of this uh, self-humbling that was taking place. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? Here's hope. God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. So now the king is doing what simply everybody else was doing. So we see that this this thing touched all levels of society. And he not only humbles himself, but he commands that everybody else does. This is a a massive repentance, revival. There are critics of the Bible. uh, Of course, Jonah is like an easy target because of the miracle of the fish and so forth that, that critics say these things can't happen. Well, critics also point out that, you know, you don't find any record of any, any mass uh, revival like this in the Assyrian Empire. And they are partly right because this is not the history of the Assyrian Empire as it's often assumed. The, the, the evidence is right in the text where it's the king of Nineveh. It's not the king of Assyria. Assyria is a huge empire. It was actually kind of uh, at, a, at a weaker point during this era, uh, 8th century B.C., about 760 B.C. And so there were a lot of individual powers within this loosely bound uh, 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 empire. But the king of Nineveh was simply, we might have called him the mayor or the provincial governor of that area, but he had such absolute authority, uh, as, as, as it was reported to Jews, the only term to describe that would be the king of Nineveh. Nineveh was not the capital 
of the Assyrian Empire at this point. A generation later, under a much more powerful king, Sennacherib, it did become the capital, but it wasn't at this time. So we need to keep in mind that this is a, a, a regional, though it's a significant city, it's a regional, uh, probably a single generation that really was affected by this revival. And not to be surprised that you don't find it in the Assyrian historical annals that try to list, you know, how great we are in our military uh, victories. But God picked out this one city in the entire empire to show his grace. Why Nineveh? Somehow, simply, God knew how they would respond. God had prepared their hearts to respond. This is basically the gospel process in that there is a sequence in which God prepares hearts. John 17 talks about how the Holy Spirit must convict people of sin because they don't believe. God prepares hearts. And then God sends a preacher, a person, a friend. So there's a prepared heart, and there's a, an obedient person, and then there is a response. We'll just see that, that process throughout Scripture as people come to believe, and the Ninevites believed. And so God targets his grace on Nineveh, where there were prepared hearts, and where, with some convincing, God got Jonah to go and tell them. Now, do we fully understand that process? No, I don't, but I find great encouragement in that process. Because that tells us, as we uh, develop a, a passion for the gospel ourselves and to share it with others, that God is at work in step one. We cannot do step one. The gospel process is that God is at work. We pray for people, but God must prepare hearts and begin to stir and, 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 and help them to see their need. We don't have power to persuade, but think about the encouragement to know that as, as we are called to uh, share the gospel, that God is preparing hearts. And it might be uh, a neighbor, not the one we expected. It could be the co-worker, not the one we like. It could be the uncle, it could be the cousin at the, at the reunion, but God is at work and to find great encouragement that God is doing that work. And the importance of that is that then they will not simply have to believe me, nor am I a persuader. They will believe God. The Ninevites believed God and God's word. The king gets off his throne and humbles himself, trading those royal robes for goat's hair cloth, and then makes this remarkable decree. I don't know if this is hyperbole. that They actually put sackcloth on animals and not feed them. But that would, that, would, that would highlight the urgency of this. If you stop feeding your animals, how long before you have a din of angry, restless animals not eating or drinking? There is whatever, a very great urgency put upon them. And then he tells them, call urgently or earnestly, pray with all your might, plead with God, and as you do, turn from your evil ways. Change. It's, a, it's just, you know, do a U-turn. And instead of what we are doing, 
call upon God. I don't think this is uh, adding a theology of, of, of adding good works to, to faith. But this is simply part of the humbling process. You, you can't be humbling yourself and seeking God while you're doing that. So you seek God, and who knows, here's the hope, God may relent and turn. Uh, some translations of the Bible even use the word repent. It's not repentance in the sense that God did something wrong. Uh, in fact, it's, it, it's interesting to, to think of that, how God is perceived as changing his mind, though yet God knows all, right, his omniscience. And yet there is, from our perspective at least, human perspective, he would have done this, but instead he may not, is their prayer. In fact, the, the king even has this sense that he may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger. That, that they somehow know that this is a God who may have compassion, though what we deserve is a fierce anger. They actually had a pretty deep understanding of, of God. This fierce anger is such an extreme word. Is, is, are they feeling the condemnation of God because their sins are so horrible? Was, was it the horribleness of their sin that was calling attention to God's wrath, his fierce anger? Were they more horrible than other people? I don't really think so. Now, the Assyrians, it's often pointed out, the Assyrian army is known for awful atrocities you wouldn't even want to describe out loud. The army was that way, but these are the common people of Nineveh, and I don't think God's, they sensed God's fierce anger because they were more evil than anyone else, but simply because the power of the word of God, they grasped that God was more holy than they had ever imagined. And again, that is the process of people understanding the gospel. It's not that mankind stands condemned because we are so horrible compared to others. It's because God is more holy than we could imagine. It's not our horribleness, it's his holiness. And it's when we come when a person becomes convinced of his holiness, Romans three twenty three begins to flash with lights because all have sinned and come short of God's glory. So it doesn't matter how much sin I have, it's that I have sinned and so I am in violation of God's perfect holy standard. In that sense of full conviction, what does God do? Verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion or relented and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. So God saw, God was waiting, watching for this response. Of course, he knew the future, but this is cause and effect. They pled in sincerity, pleading for God's grace, and he gave him, them his grace. God was waiting for this response because now we know what God wanted to do. God wanted to show compassion. That was God's desire. That's why, that's why he sent Jonah there in the first place. Second Peter 3, 9, God is not wanting for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That, that's, a, that's a picture, that's an exposure of God's heart. He doesn't want any to perish. He wants all to come to repentance. And so he does show compassion. He relents, and they are not destroyed. 
The end of chapter 3 is really the end of uh, the account as it pertains to the Ninevites. In chapter 4, when we go on to that study, we will see that there is definite business that God has to do in the heart of Jonah. But this is really the conclusion of, of, the, of the book of, of Jonah in the sense of the Ninevites. They repented, they believed God, and God showed them grace and compassion. Uh, so let's take some time to think through, first, what this, past, what this uh, book really tells us about the nature of God, but specifically this passage, and then to answer some important questions. Questions. When, when we come to Scripture, the, the most important question we can ever ask is, what does this passage tell me about who God is? Because anything we do in response to Scripture has to be in connection to a, a correct view of God. So what we learn about God in this passage are some basic, simple things. Uh, God warns people. God warns people. So there's a whole world of children, if you will, that are running into the street, and God wants to warn them. God listens to sincere prayers. So they pled earnestly with God, and God heard. Also, God sees that's the term. It's like a visual thing. He sees right into their hearts. The word of God uh, pierces to the intentions, motives of the heart. That's what God sees. And he saw the change in their heart. He sees the hearts of those who reach out to him. And then we see that God is eager to show grace instead of judgment. Like any loving parent who, who gives a, 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 a serious and needed warning, you just... Hope they will respond because what do you want to do? You don't want to judge. You want to show grace. And that is the heart of God. So we need to get a picture of the character of God that is accurate because God is so often misperceived in one of two extremely wrong directions, two ditches. On the one hand, our world has a view of God that, uh, that God loves everyone, truth, but therefore judges no one and that everything is okay that anyone does and there are no moral standards, right? We understand that view of God. And so we hear that you know, thrown about with any uh, contemporary issue, Call them social issues, but they are more than that. They are moral and biblical issues. And what well, my God would never... Okay, that's one ditch. But in the other ditch, we find the view of God that God is basically always angry. It's at least a perspective. God is essentially mean. God is looking to, to squash and attack uh, people for their sin. Unfortunately, sometimes... Uh, as parents and pastors, we can proliferate this view simply by sometimes a, a means of, uh, of, of overemphasis and misdirection. But that would be the other extreme. Those are both false views of who God is. This is who God is. And so God is a combination of being perfectly holy and just while also being perfectly compassionate and gracious. He is the best 
ever judge the best ever compassionate Father, all wrapped up in one. So we need to have that clear view of who God is, first of all. And then, I'd like us in, this, in the book, essentially, to answer, look at and try to answer three big questions. So why was Jonah written? Why do we, why do we have it in our Bibles today? Were the Ninevites saved spiritually? Because sometimes it's thought they were simply spared physical judgment. And then the question, what about those who have never heard? Nineveh had not heard. Many others around them never did. Three, I think, important questions. Number one, why was Jonah written? Jonah was written to show God's compassion for the world. As we've tried to label and and summarize the book on our banner as well. God's compassion on the world is an emphasis on him loving not only the Jews, because till that time it was, it was the Jews who were his focus. And specifically, the world then becomes the people of Nineveh in the book of Jonah. So if you can picture uh, the, 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 the biblical world of 2,800 years ago, the time of Jonah, God had invested... Uh, his focus on the Jewish people. He had given Moses the law. There were scribes, there were prophets who continually taught God's word. To who? To the Jews. It was all focused on the nation of Israel. They were his chosen people, the, the, the descendants of Abraham, and they are still his chosen people, and he still has a future for them. They, he was, but but the, the Old Testament uh, concern was for the Jewish people. And then he calls Jonah, and within the northern Israel that where Jonah lived, there was, uh, there was a lot of evil. In fact, the northern ten tribes uh, were ruled by kings. All 19 of them were bad kings. There was plenty of sin for God to send Jonah to address. He could have been a, a full-time prophet just addressing the kings and the sin within Israel. But God sent him instead, surprisingly to Jonah, sent him to Nineveh. Not the whole Assyrian Empire, Nineveh. Carefully, forcefully persuades Jonah, go to Nineveh and tell them what I want you to tell them. And so we see that God has compassion for the world, which includes Not just the Jews, but Gentiles, and not all Gentiles, but Nineveh. So that God is focusing his grace when he has compassion for the world. And that's why we can rightly personalize John 3.16 when we say, God so loved the world. Have you ever heard that where they, you know, put your name in there? I think it's important sometimes to even do that as we share that verse with someone who's perhaps not a believer. For God so loved Jeff. Wow, now that's personal. You loved me, Lord, that you went to the cross to die for my sins. But if God so loved us, there are others around the world that God is also zeroing in and targeting. Do we have a heart like God's? Because the point of understanding that God, Jonah was written to show us God's compassion for the world is to have what effect on us? that we would have a compassion on the world like God does, because we are to be godly, godlike. 
And so do we have the compassion for the world? And if we have the compassion for the world, if that's the message of God to us, then it will cause a response and a reaction. So what is your personal response or reaction to the reality that God has a focus on the world to come to know Christ in our New Testament terms today? What, what, are, what are your... How do you obey and express that you have a compassion for the lost throughout the world? Uh, through the, the, the church budget and ministry focus. We can do things corporately and get to know missionaries and, and support them in some substantial ways as we come together to do that. But can I suggest just one action step? That you as an individual or as a family, and I know many, many people at Open Door already do this, would have a prayer focus by adding to your personal family budget the support of some missionary. Because what Priscilla and I have found is that as we have uh, supported individual families, missionary families, they become connected to us and we can focus our, our, our prayer on them. And, and so do you have that? I would encourage you to do that. If you, if you would need to know where to start, I mean, you may have other contacts, that's fantastic, but if you are looking to do that, I'd encourage you to talk to Jeff or uh, anybody from our missions team. They have, uh, they have the facts and figures of the missionary family that Open Door supports because these, these families need support, not just from, from churches, but from individuals. And uh, they could explain to you what the missionaries do and what, where maybe God's heart and, and their ministry would connect with you and uh, even what the financial needs, who is in the most need. So I just encourage you to consider that as we think of, of God's purpose for uh, the book of Jonah in the life of Open Door uh, Bible Church. So what, were, 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 the, were the Ninevites saved spiritually? Were they saved spiritually, because uh, you could just read that and say, well, they turned from their wickedness and God didn't destroy them like he would have. But is there any evidence, and how would it be that they would have been saved spiritually? I believe there, there is. And uh, so that they were both saved uh, physically as well as spiritually. Now, for that to be the case, I really think we need to assume that, God, that Jonah told them more than the single line of verse 4. And uh, he definitely would have had the time to do that. The Ninevites believed God, it says in verse 5. What could they believe about God from the ministry of Jonah? I believe there's three things that uh, Jonah would have been able to communicate uh, in very simple terms. One is that God is the creator and has authority over their lives. For, for the people to repent and believe in God, they had to believe that he is the authority. The reason they would believe he's the authority is because he is the creator. Uh, Jonah was not uh, hesitant to blurt out when they, the sailors first found him on the ship down below he blurted out, I worship the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the land. That was the identifying factor <clears throat> in the God of Israel, the true God, is that he is the creator. That's news to pagans who had a consistently polytheistic, many-God view of the world. 
This is also like what Paul would preach preached in uh, when he came to the city of Athens, Acts 17, where in this city full of all kinds of idols and gods, Paul introduced the God who made the world and everything in it, Acts 17:24. So it's the doctrine of creation that establishes the authority of God. If God did not create, he does not have authority over all the people of the world. And if he does not have authority over the people of the world, then his word is not authority. And if his word is not authority, then the message of salvation is completely invalidated. And thus, the doctrine of creation, special creation by God, is foundational to our salvation. A God who does not cre- did not create cannot be a Savior, but a God who did create can be a Savior. It's His world, and so His rules. God's the Creator. I believe they will have understood that. Secondly, they would have understood that God is holy, and we see this in their genuine guilt and remorse for sin. Uh, It's only a sense of God's holiness that would cause us to feel guilty. It is is a sense of of, of rules that make you feel guilty. The the, the reason there's you you have this this instant reaction to to a, a, a patrol car alongside the road is because you're aware of a rule. So they were aware of God's holiness. But at the same time, they were aware that God was gracious. And the, and, the, and the way that the king urges them to pray, call urgently on God. Who knows? He might relent. He might show compassion. What view did he have of God? That God could indeed choose to be gracious. I don't think it's terribly far-fetched to that, that for, for them to know God was gracious, for Jonah to explain that grace through the Old Testament sacrificial system because apart from sacrifice, there is no means of grace that God would uh, accept a substitute so that he could show grace. So perhaps, we don't know that, but we, perhaps he shared that as well, which would fill in the blank. So God is the creator. He is holy and has authority to judge, but he is gracious and has authority actually to forgive. And so when they believed God, they can believe with knowledge, and I believe it can be uh, from the basis not, not only covering physical judgment, but spiritual, eternal judgment. To me, the most convincing, though, is that Jesus said the Ninevites would testify against those who were not repentant. He became, the Ninevites became examples of Old Testament foreigners who came to know God. Jesus said the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation. He's referring to the uh, rejecting uh, portion of Israel, Pharisees, etc. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is referring to himself as greater than Jonah. Likewise, the queen of the south, sometimes called the queen of Sheba, will rise to the judgment with the generation, this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. So he's using it as a form of rebuke to the disobedient, dis, dis, uh, unbelieving portion of Israel. 
And so while I wish we could have more information of what all Jonah spoke, uh, it is, it is, I think we can assume they are spiritually saved as well as physically. That raises the third question, though, that I think is worthy of, of our consideration, particularly in the book of Jonah. And that is the question about what are those, about those who have never heard, that is, heard the gospel in our terms, what about those who were not in Nineveh, the people of, of greater Assyria, the people of Egypt, or wherever else it might be? And I, we get, I actually get that question quite often. Just a, just a little week ago, uh, uh, somebody was in my office and says, what about those who have never heard the gospel? How, how, is, how is that right that they are judged, or, or how, how, how are they saved? And I think this is an important question to understand. <clears throat> so let's think it through. There's going to be two key issues, but the first one is this. Remember how we saw how God is perfectly just and holy while at the same time perfectly gracious? Let's think it through. Everyone is accountable for sin whether or not they have heard the gospel. How can that be? Romans chapter 1. Most important passage, I think, to, to clearly walk through this understanding. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the, all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. God's wrath is, is just and proper against all those, all the world, because of what? Because they suppress the truth by their wickedness. So we see that while judgment is not what God wants, it is what is necessary if people suppress the truth. Sin and wickedness is a means of suppressing the truth. You see, there's a common false narrative that is told that goes basically like this. People would be good except that they're influenced by people who are bad. The reality is we are all sinners and fall short of God's glory. We are all born in sin and we will all sin because we are sinners. And so Paul's point uh, as, as he writes this is not that God is hiding truth from some people and not others, but rather that people hide themselves from God and his truth by their sin. And that would be all cultures, including our own. But how would people ever know about God if no one has told them? And that is a fair question. The next verse says, Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God made it plain to them. So thinking of those who are suppressing the truth, and, 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 and let's, let's go ahead and picture, if you will, the, the primitive person who has never had a Bible before them, never heard about Jesus Christ, he is saying that the truth about God is plain to them. God has made it plain to them. How so? Verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. See how important the creation is? Having been seen, understood by what has been made, so that people are without Excuse. So what would people know about God simply through what he has made that would hold them accountable for their sin? What does the text say? His eternal power 
and His divine nature are visible. So when, when people have food to eat, water to drink, see the beauty of a sunrise, experience the, the, the value of human relationships, and whatever it is that they might see, it is evidence of two things. There is a God who has eternal power because He was here before me and He made all this. The creation, that's why creation is so foundational to, to, to sal- understanding salvation. As a God who created something, He is all-powerful, and what He created was actually good and necessary, and I need it, and I like it. And so He is a good and all-powerful God. Now, does just knowing that save someone? No. There's, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So somebody has to know about Christ in the gospel. So what happens when someone responds to this? That's the real question. If they don't respond to them, to these things, they are really like, a, like a, 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 someone lost in a cave who sees a, 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 a lighted arrow pointing that way and ignores it, and they perish. So if they ignore it, that's on them, and they suppress it by their own selfishness and sinfulness. But if they respond to the arrow, then what happens? When people seek to know God, we can trust God to send someone to tell them how to be saved. God, who is eternal, is, is crafting together this eternal plan of salvation. And I know I've told this story uh, before, but for me it's, it's, it's what clarified my understanding. Uh, the story of a, a man named Nison who I got to meet in 1989 when Bill, and Bill Keel took me to Thailand uh, for the first time. And I got to meet him just a couple of years before he died of cancer. But this is Nison's own story, a tribal farm, farmer who raised, was raised in animism, worship of the spirits, but who in his heart thought exactly about Romans 1 without knowing it. This is, there must be an eternal God who is so powerful that he's made all these wonderful things that I need and enjoy. And so when Bill and Bev arrived, after God had prepared them, brought them to faith in Christ, brought them through the training, had a few babies, went to mission field, and began to prepare and, and with, other, with partners, translate the Bible, and share the message, my son goes, that's it, that's it, that's it, that's what I was looking for. And he puts his faith in Christ because he needed to hear the gospel. And God brought the gospel to him. And as a result of that, there are four or five, I think maybe six churches now that are under the, the uh, oversight, uh, under uh, Jalot, the, the pastor who once spoke with us here, came to visit here, uh, oversees that. And, and all through this tribal farmer who responded to nature, God's, not nature, creation. God's work in creation. And through that, God has done this amazing work because that's what God does. God seeks those who are seeking Him. Luke 19.10, the Son of Man, Jesus, came to seek and to save the lost. That's, that's what God does through Christ. And then God sends someone to tell them this, pro- this process of preparing hearts and then sending someone, be it Jonah or the Apostle Paul is an example here where in the missionary journey Paul was going to, didn't know what to do next, if you will, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. 
And this text says that Paul concluded the Lord must be calling me to go to Macedonia. Macedonia is where the uh, Philippian church, you have the book of Philippians, the church of Philippi is. It's where the jailer came to faith in Christ. So God seeks those who are seeking him. God sends someone to tell them. People respond in faith like Nineveh did, like the people of Macedonia. The jailer rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed because that's what God does. And so in heaven, there will be people from all parts of the world. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. You know what I find so special about that is we at Open Door Bible Church get to be a part of what God is doing right now, just like he was doing for Nineveh. In the video that you watched as we started the service, the Stouses, uh, that's only about a month-old video they made, and yet at that point, if you noticed in the video, they said, uh, we're trying to decide which tribal area group we're going to go to. And then Jeff mentioned that uh, they, have, they have settled on one. Let me just read from their most recent letter, then just about a week ago, uh, what they said. After becoming an official team, the next step was to pick, up, was to pick where to go. It was an agonizing process. It was ever on our minds that one yes meant a no to every other group. Eventually we chose to serve among the Koval people, K-O-V-A-L. One thing that especially set them apart in our minds was their strong desire to have missionaries come and teach them. They've seen life changes in the lives of their neighboring people group and have actively tried to get that message in their own language ever since. You see the process? So God was preparing their hearts, and then God was sending someone to tell them, our own Rat and Stacy. And God is in the process of sending them into there, and we can pray for and anticipate that they will understand the gospel as the, their language is, first of all, written down, translates portions of the Bible, and so they can teach from the word of God and believe. It's Nineveh all over again. But the principle we see is that God is always connecting. It's not, just, it's not just people way out there. People in our own society, people probably in this county, I hear some remarkable stories of kids who actually have no idea of who Jesus Christ is. They never heard of it. Never heard of him. In our own culture. Yes, they could Google it, but are they? No, that's not... They don't know. Why? Because God uses people who connect people to the gospel that saves them eternally. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you have a compassion for the lost and that you are right now preparing hearts to understand and believe. Thank you that we as a church can have a role in seeing that gospel go around the world, but also that it can, we continually have opportunity around us where you are preparing hearts. Lord, make us faithful in sharing the message that brings eternal life because of your care, your grace, and because of your cross. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.